in tomorrow to celebrate Christmas with some friends do every year. So squeezing this one in under the gun, but now that I'm not really editing these, it's a lot easier to, uh, to get them done. A uh, bunch of things. The first thing I saw this, it's funny. I saw a link somewhere, maybe it was on Twitter or maybe it was on, um, no stir, but somebody was talking about this documentary and I clicked on it and it was open in my browser for like a week. And I was going to close it like, okay, fine. I never looked at it. But for some reason I was like, all right, let me start watching this. And it was called The Great Taking. I don't know if you guys have heard of this by a guy named David Webb. David Webb, coincidentally, was the real name of Jason Bourne. I hope I didn't give give away the Bourne movies for you. They were out like 20 years ago. Still the best action movies or among the best action movies. But David Webb, real name of Jason Bourne. Also the uh, high-end jewelry place where my mom worked for a few years in New York. But anyway, this guy, David Webb, was like a hedge fund guy. He had done a lot of different things in the 80s and 90s and aughts um, to make money on Wall Street. And he had made money trading, according to him, according to the documentary, um, by sort of recognizing ahead of most people what the Fed was doing to manipulate markets, which now everybody kind of knows. But back then, it was not as well known. Anyway, a lot of like the first 15 minutes of it is just him establishing his credentials to know what the hell he's talking about, whether you buy into it or not. And I don't know because that's not really my world, but um, but it sounded plausible to me, at least given what I do know. And what his thesis was essentially that, um, he didn't say this, but in the same way that we now know, <clears throat> thanks to reading people like uh, Lynn Alden and others, that basically, you know, your bank account, this isn't what he was saying, but I've been saying this after reading some of these people, that, you know, your bank account's just an IOU from the bank. It's not like your your money's good there. If the bank defaults, um, then your bank account doesn't exist. You know, it's an IOU from the bank. And so um, there's counterparty risk. Like when you put your money in the bank, you're sort of making a bet that the bank stays solvent and can get you your money, even though you know that it's lending out way more money than it has. Um, your bank account is an IOU. It's not actual money. It's not like having cash. Um, and it's certainly not ha like having gold or silver or Bitcoin. Okay, so I knew that. But what he was saying essentially is that over the last 50 years, they've been making these laws that not, don't get a lot of publicity, but that basically do the same thing with stocks and bonds. Obviously with bonds, you know, whoever you're loaning money to, the government, federal government, state governments, municipalities, corporations, that's counterparty risk. Um, but you'd think that in the world's reserve currency, they would just print it, even if they sort of did a soft default, um, they would just give you the nominal amount that you were owed on the bonds. Okay, maybe. But the stocks is what he was talking about. Like you own a bunch of equities, you own some Apple stock, you own some Microsoft, whatever. And say you use Charles Schwab, as your online broker and say, you know, what happens to some of those banks like Silicon Valley Bank, Schwab goes bust. Now, I think it used to be, he was saying that, okay, it's unfortunate that my custodian went bust, but um, those stocks would just be transferred to an account somewhere else, a different custodian. Okay, fine. Like that bank was insolvent, but my holdings are my holdings and they just get moved to whoever um, replaces them as the custodian for those things. But apparently, according to this guy, David Webb, and the documentary is the great taking, that they have made laws that sort of change that. And that now not only uh, are your stocks not really even 
custodied by Schwab or E-Trade, or I don't know if E-Trade even exists, but whatever the broker is that you use online, um, they're in some sort of central clearinghouse and they're not even fun. They're, they're totally fungible. They're not even like sort of distinguished. Like it used to, when you own stocks, you got stock certificates, like paper stock certificates, and they were individual, just like dollar bills. They're fungible, but dollars each have serial numbers. Now these stocks are just sort of in this big bucket in these clearinghouses. And in the event that the um, the Schwab or whatever, wherever you use to trade stocks collapsed, that you would lose the stocks themselves. That's what he was saying. Now, again, fact checks this. I'm not positive this is true, but the guy sounded serious, legitimate, and this sounded plausible to me. And then basically the great reset would just simply be that, that when these custodians fail, they just kind of own all of the stocks. And his thesis was like own things that he didn't really mention Bitcoin, which is a bit odd. And this came out a month ago, the, the uh, documentary. But he was saying to own, you know, real estate without debt, because apparently there's other laws that if you have a loan on your debt, it can be repossessed. It can be, or if, if the, uh, you know, the debt burden sounds good now when interest rates are low or, um, and, and perhaps like having the debt, you know, won't be serviceable because the money uh, velocity will just kind of stop as everything collapses. And he thinks that uh, we're close because we just had, you know, these zero rates for 10 years. And then all of a sudden we, are at five, six percent, and that things have already broken, but that you know imminently something's going to break, and it's going to be sort of the catalyst for this um, for this collapse, which then ends up being you know collapsing some of these banks, like Silicon Valley Bank collapsed in March, and then eventually um, people just they just take everything, and something similar happened in the '30s, and so that um, anyway, it was just sobering and a bit. Uh, bit disturbing and it could be bullshit could these you know this could just be propaganda it could be something else but uh i, I it's an, like an hour long and it certainly sort of seemed plausible to me and just got me thinking to have some things that don't have counterparty risk i mean of course even real estate unencumbered no loans has counterparty risk in the sense that you still pay property tax it's still in a physical location where for any reason, the state could come and tell you, you know, we need to eminent domain this, something important's happening or whatever. I mean, you don't, you know, it, Bitcoin and I guess precious metals, which I don't really believe in precious metals because I think they were the best money for, you know, five, 10,000 years, but um, they don't keep up with the speed of, of the internet. And so you're always going to have a mismatch between settling transactions and precious metals and the information flow. And so, you know, you know where my sort of bet is on, but just kind of a sobering thing. And he doesn't even mention Bitcoin, which also kind of gave me pause about it. Like, why aren't you in the, in the documentary, like it flickers on the screen a bunch, but he doesn't actually mention it. Um, he doesn't actually talk about it at all. So, you know, maybe he's doesn't have everything together, but, um, but I just figured I would pass that on. A, to just raise awareness, is this actually true? Have they actually changed the laws such that um, if your brokerage were to collapse that you would no longer own the equities in that? Um, is that actually true? Um, could this actually... And so he, he basically says that that 2030 WAF Great Reset is that, is basically a, you know, like the cyber pandemic, whatever, um, is basically just some sort of... He's not even really talking about a cyber pandemic 
per se. He's just talking about the uh, some sort of credit event, you know, based on um, you know the rates being so much higher than they were for ten years and um, rates rolling over and say commercial real estate crashes. What does that do to these banks? What does that do to the custodians? And if they start collapsing, what are your rights? You know, as he, he basically says, you're an unsecured creditor. You basically have an IOU, same as your bank, that you um, would have an IOU in bankruptcy court as an unsecured creditor, which means get in line. There's not going to be anything left for you. And the secured creditors um, would be ahead of you. And the secured creditors would be the banks and everybody else who is better positioned to take uh, possession of your equity in all these companies. Again, could be bullshit. Um, I didn't go and try to fact check whether these laws had actually changed. He, in, in the documentary, he cites all the laws that it, that he that he says changed these arrangements. And his belief is that it could be stopped um, via awareness, via people realizing, even rich people, right? Because rich people are the ones that own all the equities, um, being like, wait, what the fuck? Is this true? And then sort of sending the signal like, no, this is not, you know, we need to, that basically this is just... Um, lawfare of sorts against um, people and that this could be undone because obviously, regardless of the legalese around who owns what equities, companies still do business, um, products and services are still you know, moving throughout the economy. And although they would be greatly hampered and there'd be a economic, huge economic depression if you know the, the, the keeping track of all this stuff fell apart for this reason, um, it wouldn't food would still be produced, commerce would still be happening, and that this is just sort of a conceptual issue. It's a legal framework and that it could be undone. Anything that can be legally um, slanted against you could be undone. So his his prescription was awareness and spreading it. So I just figured I would put it in my podcast also, just in case it is true. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, you, you have things like Oh, wait, Colorado, I don't think this is going to hold up. But as an example, Colorado is allowed to say, oh, Donald Trump, the uh, leader in the polls, presidential candidate, it's not um, going to be on the uh, presidential. You're not going to be able to choose Trump uh, as a voter um, in November of 24. He's not going to be on the ballot. That's that's allowed. Suddenly a state can just delete uh, the leader on the ballot for what? For a crime that he committed? No, he's just been accused on TV of committing the crime of insurrection. There's no uh, case against him. There's no conviction. It's not like he's committed a felony or something. Um, they're trying to prosecute him for other things like misstating the value uh, of Mar-a-Lago to get a loan, which again is ridiculous. But when you see something like a state trying to delete the leading uh, presidential candidate in the polls, and saying they're doing it to preserve democracy, which is a total inversion of what they're actually doing. They're subverting democracy. And then things like, oh, they've changed the law so that if your brokerage goes bust, you don't just transfer your stocks. They they get, you know, they're sort of in this repository that will then make you an unsecured creditor. It doesn't sound that far-fetched to me, the fact that that would be plausible. So I'm putting it out there just to um, warn people and, uh, raise awareness to it. And, and again, I don't, I'm not doing the deep dive into the legal, but maybe one of you will, maybe want to use more into that kind of thing. Um, but the guy seemed rigorous and legit. The guy's name is David Webb and the documentary is the great taking it's on YouTube. You can watch it if you're interested. Okay. That's that. Um, I'm not going to get into the whole, uh, Trump 
Colorado shenanigans and also um, the new message, the new operation, which seems to be that Trump is so dangerous and he's going to become Hitler and the people on Twitter who are essentially saying you're a conspiracy theorist for thinking he's not going to suddenly become Hitler, even though they said that before and he was president and he didn't become Hitler, but you're a conspiracy theorist for thinking he won't become Hitler, even though that's not a theory. That's just your experience. I went on an extended rant on that, that Alan Soslowski teed me up for on the real man sports podcast. So you can check out real man sports podcast the last 15, 20 minutes. I feel like I did justice to that topic on that. I'm not going to rehash it here. Um, but Obviously, that's something that's going on, and it's there. Um, I was going to talk just a minute about Bitcoin. It's sort of flirting with forty-four thousand again. Um, not only is it an asset with uh, without counterparty risk, um, but it's also if the David Webb thing is true, or even if it's not um, entirely true, or there's some more nuance to it. Um, I do think as things get more precarious, that um, people are increasingly going to want to own some. The ETF, the impending ETF may send the price up a lot in January if it gets approved in January. I can't tell what's going to come out first or last, the ETF approval or the Epstein client list. I'll get into that in a second too. They they both seem to always imminently be coming out and then they never actually happen. I don't, I'm not really that excited about the ETF. It's great if the price goes up, but it seems like there's some fuckery that's going to happen with that. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's just, it's too bulletproof and they're just trying to get a little piece of it for their uh, investors while they can. And there's really nothing uh, nefarious or sinister about it. I've, I've heard um, some Bitcoiners speculate that once it's available via ETF, they're going to ban um, holding the actual underlying asset itself. They're going to say, you know, only licensed custodians are allowed to custody it. And, you know, you have to get it through them via ETF. You're not going to be able to get it, or maybe MicroStrategy. You're not going to be able to get it. The thing itself, you need to turn it in, just like FDR did with gold in the 30s. They ordered everyone to turn over their gold. I think they could try something like that. I think the problem is that there's, you know, oh, it's a big world, and there's other governments that may not require that, and um, and that would really put the U.S. citizens at a big disadvantage. Maybe they don't really care about that, um, but that would be. Um, a big problem for them. You know, you're going to make the US citizens turn in their Bitcoin and everybody else in the world can still hold theirs privately. Uh, maybe it'll be a coordinated thing like COVID where everybody's ordered to do that, but there'll still be many countries that don't go along. People would be getting citizenship in those countries very quickly. Um, so that's a complicated problem for them. And the other thing is the enforceability of it, right? If they, all the Bitcoiners just say, fuck you, we're not doing that. You know, it's just, uh, what are they going to do? Um, well, they could put a gun to your head and say, you know, turn it in, sell it. But you could say, I don't know. I lost my keys. Um, and it's impossible for them to prove that you didn't. And there's too many people, you know, and it's not, it's, it's just information, right? I mean, it's just, you could say, uh, okay, um, sorry, I'm not going to do it. And really all it is, is a bunch of, you know, numbers and letters or a bunch of words or a bunch of hexadecimals, it's not, you know, it's not really um, something that can be illegal, right? I mean, it's just like, okay, I, you don't really have it. It's not like on your person. It's not in your house. It's just some knowledge that you have. I just have knowledge of how to access this, right? It's on the great spreadsheet in the sky. 
and you know the password to that particular cell in the spreadsheet. You just happen to know it. And they can't prove that you know it. They can only prove that you know it after you send it. That's the proof. But until you send it, there's no way for them to prove that you know it. And knowing it is just knowing a bunch of letters and numbers, right? It's like, it's illegal for you to have this set of letters and numbers, you know, on a, you know, a disconnected from the internet hard drive somewhere or on a piece of paper. You're not allowed to have this numbers and letters in this combination on a piece of paper because it corresponds to a cell in the great spreadsheet in the sky that uh, is very powerful and can send a billion dollars at a, at a moment's notice. And we can't have people having that power. So you, you got to turn over your piece of paper. It's, it's going to be a very hard thing to enforce. So I'm not as concerned about that, but it is interesting how this is all going to play out and what happens. The other, the other thing that would happen is if there's an ETF and if, you know, the Black Rocks and all these other uh, people applying, all these other institutions applying for ETFs really do bring in a couple trillion dollars of investment. And it is 200 to one, you know, or whatever the ratio is of how much the price goes up based on how much money comes in. Because of course, there's no, there's no supply of this. It's going to be halved in April of this year you know, of next, you know, 2024 in April, the halving comes where the reward is half. And, you know, the people who, after the, uh, FTX disaster and went down to 16,000. The people who didn't sell in the face of that down from 69,000 or whatever the peak was, they're just even more hardened. There's just the hardest hodlers of all time sitting there. So they're not going to sell it to you for 50 or 70 or 100 or 200, especially as it's going up. So where's BlackRock going to get this from? Where's the uh, available supply? As demand increases, supply is actually cut in half in April. And if you don't understand the halving, basically there's a reward for the miners for securing each block every 10 minutes. And that reward is going from six and a quarter to three and an eighth Bitcoin in April. So every 10 minutes, there's six, right now there's six Bitcoin, six and a quarter, I believe, Bitcoin coming online. And the miners, they, you know, they use electricity and they usually, they have to pay for it. So they usually sell some of the Bitcoin to, uh, to cover their costs. And so this Bitcoin is then available. The supply is available for people who want to buy it. And it's every 10 minutes, there's another six available. But if you have to buy 50,000 of them, um, it's, it's very slow going, waiting for six, and then it's going to be three. So this is really going to tighten it, and everybody wants a piece of it. And so, you know, we'll see. I could see it going down, you know, sort of like buy the rumor, sell the news when the ETFs approved and then people start selling. But I think once they start accumulating, to the extent they haven't accumulated enough already, um, there's just not going to be supply there. And that should theoretically uh, push the price up. So there's that. Um, Lynn Alden always talks about how the price of Bitcoin is usually correlated with liquidity. There's some uh, talk that the Fed is going to lower rates now because things are breaking from them raising it so much. And if that happens, there's a lot more liquidity. That's why the markets have gone up the last few weeks probably. Um, and Bitcoin's gone up too. So this could be sort of like um, a, uh, I'm missing the word here, it begins with a C, a, uh, a conflation, but like a coincidence. It's not even coincidence, but you know, coincidence of things coming together and, and really uh, you might see something crazy, possibly. Again, I don't want to predict price short term because um, I've been wrong a lot on that and just kind of a fool's errand, but um, 
it just seems like the environment's kind of bullish. But I think also, as you see sort of the convulsions of the state losing power, Elizabeth Warren partnering with Jamie Dimon to try to demonize uh, Bitcoin and to try to associate it with Hamas or whatever she's trying to do. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's especially sad character. Her, her purpose of getting into power into government was to combat the abuses of the banking system. And now she's siding with them uh, to try to, uh, she's not going to succeed, so it doesn't really matter, but she's siding with them now to, um, to close like the one out that regular people have with all the fuckery that's going on um, with the inflation, with um, the things that David Webb is talking about. There's this one out for like the average person with a smartphone, you know, can buy a hundred dollars worth, can buy $50 worth, can, um, you know, say, you know, have some of his savings not be just an IOU from the bank, which he's never relying on the bank, which is not his friend. Um, and she's trying to derail that this person who is there to take on the bank for the common person. And it's, it's not just sad. It's, it's betrayal. You know, it's uh, capitulation. It's, uh, it's dishonor. It's really, uh, it's a tragic thing to have a person who is like that. And another guy, Matt Stoller, who's always like anti-monopoly and fighting for the regular person against monopolies. And he's, he says that, you know, the people running uh, Bitcoin businesses are, are traitors, you know, and tra traitors, you know, capital, it's a capital crime to be a traitor. So he's basically saying they should be put to death. And, and it happens. You see this a lot when somebody who um, gets a little famous, gets a little known, writes a book, um, is revered in certain circles for taking on the bad guys. And then something comes along that actually obsoletes the bad guys completely because they don't have power over it. But it also obsoletes them, right? Because if your role is Elizabeth Warren, I'm going to take on the banks. And there's something that kind of obsoletes the banks. You don't need a bank because this system works without a bank. That's the whole point. There's no counterparty. It's peer to peer. And then you're Elizabeth Warren and you're the big, you know, your, your entire power base comes from taking on corrupt Wall Street. You're going to want to side with Wall Street, right? Because, because, Corrupt Wall Street is your enemy that you need, the kayfabe, which I talked about last week, the fake enemy that you need to exist, right? There is no Elizabeth Warren if there's no Wall Street. There's no point in her being in Congress, in the Senate. There's no point in her being in the Senate if, um, if there's no evil Wall Street to take on. If Wall Street just gets completely obsoleted by Bitcoin, then what's, who's Elizabeth Warren? She's nobody. And, you know, Matt Stoller to a lesser extent, I mean, he's railing against all this stuff, but if Bitcoin fixes this, which is a popular motto among the Bitcoiners, it oh, fixes this, it fixes the corruption because they don't have command over this. They don't control the money supply anymore. They can't just bribe a senator to get their way anymore. Then, um, then these people are irrelevant. And so you see them turning against them and... You know, it's almost like similar, not exactly, but the it's almost like an honest cop is more dangerous to corrupt cops than criminals are. The criminals and the cops are in partnership, right? Like the dirty cops, dirty cops, you know, get a little take from it. They get some wins. The criminals will throw some low, low level guys under the bus. They'll tolerate some arrests, but really they're in partnership, right? The, the corrupt cops, um, get the W when they announce something, supposedly some big bust. Um, but an actual clean cop that reports on that, that's the real enemy, right? That's the real enemy that the one who kind of threatens to end the relationship completely. 
um, is the enemy of the dirty cop, way worse than the criminal. And I kind of feel like this is what's going on. You know, you have Elizabeth Warren. She probably doesn't know that she's a dirty cop. Maybe she's so craven um, that it just seems like she's doing good. A lot of these people identify as do-gooders and maybe they don't know. Maybe in their heart of hearts, they do know, but they're dependent on the big bad Wall Street to exist. And so I think you see a little bit of that. Anyway, it's just uh, interesting times which we live. But I want to talk about something else, actually. It's kind of something I was working on. I was going to talk about it uh, yesterday. I mean, last week. And I'm actually not working on this. It's just an idea that I haven't really written down, but you know, we'll just uh, verbalize it. Is um, I have an idea for like a sci-fi type of story. And it, it's sort of how everybody is chasing, you know, wealth, fame, pleasure, success, and you're sort of trained to do that, the rat race. And some people are going to get left behind, right? Like there's just not enough wealth and success and status for everybody. Most people are going to be poor or certainly not rich. Most people are not going to um, get exactly what they want, but you can kind of bribe them. I mean, I think it's kind of pathetic that a lot of the laptop class has been bribed with this really meager status of being like, I'm on team good. I, I, I injected myself on command. I'm good. Or, you know, it's just pathetic, you know, or I have the right pronouns. I'm willing to, you know, oh, these, these dumb, uneducated Trumpers, they don't know the right pronouns. They're, they're bad people. They're racist. They're sexist. They're transphobic. You know, I'm, I'm superior. I, I know all the right protocols to navigate the team good landscape. I think that's pathetic. If you got bought off by that, by a little pat on the back and you're, don't even have money or wealth and that's it. Like that's truly, that's, that's, a, that's just a sad existence. But I do think in a, in a real sense, you know, they're bribing people with Doritos and cheap processed foods that have just the crunch, just the saltiness, just the sweet, just the seed oils that make you crave them. And if you have your food and you have your status and you have a bunch of combination of things, um, you'll go along, you know, you have a roof over your head. Um, it's enough. UBI, whatever it would be after they take away your stocks per David Webb's documentary, um, you're going to be compliant enough. Um, but I actually think that's, you know, that's sort of the own nothing, be happy WEF vision for the future. But I've talked about this before and that's kind of a shit sales pitch, right? Like there are people pathetic enough to go along with that, but I think most people are like, no, I actually want like you know, some fresh air and a piece of land and a house and a family and a real life. I want more than just the, you know, eating processed food and injecting myself with the vaccines and getting a status pat on the back. And because the money is been stolen and siphoned away uh, by the ruling class for the last 50 years via inflation, via taxes, via money printing, um, that may not be available, at least under their terms, for that many people. You know, people may say, "There's, there's nothing I can afford. There's no job available that I can do." I was born in the wrong generation, and I think the more nefarious um, way of appeasing them would be um, through, you know, things like Neuralink, things like virtual reality, where you plug into the headset. You know, they get these terrorists to blow up, um, to commit attacks. 74 virgins in paradise, right? When you die, if you do a suicide bombing, you'll get 74 virgins. And if you're miserable, poor, 
abused, um, don't have family, you know, you're growing up sort of as an orphan somewhere in the Middle East, you know, maybe the promise of 74 virgins after you've committed this attack is, is enough, you know, because certainly your present reality is a lot of suffering. And so they bribe them with that. But imagine if you could put on the headset, the bodysuit, whatever it is, and actually kind of, you know, with Neuralink or you don't even need the bodysuit, it's hooked directly into your brain via dopamine, you start to get some of those experiences directly. Well, now, you know, now it's like it's better than eating Doritos. I mean, you're getting the Doritos work on your brain too. All this stuff works on your brain. Even Twitter, we'll get into that in a minute. I, I think I made a mistake by paying for Twitter this month. I'll probably cancel it next month, but I'll get into why I did that. Even though I railed against it like a nutless monkey, I capitulated. I'll get into that. Um, I think that, uh, I think that this is a much more compelling pitch to people who, um, things aren't working out for, right? Like you could get, if it works, I don't think it really is going to work like real life would work, but you know, to the extent they can do a good job, I'm very skeptical now of like AI. I tried Grok now that I pay for Twitter. It's total shit chat gpt it's not scary at all it's just it's just like this it's it, i don't think there's much of a breakthrough i mean it's cool that you can like get it to say something that sounds like a a person but it doesn't really when you get to a little bit familiar with it but anyway digress um assuming they could do a good job of producing this dopamine that you've basically been chasing your whole life um via you know this i mean via the rat race, via trying to get good grades in college and pass your tests and get a job and save some money and et cetera, et cetera, get promoted. I'm assuming they can just go direct to the brain with the payoff for all of that stuff. And it's, you know, if they can do a better job than the Doritos and the um, internet porn or whatever whatever the payoff is now and the pat on the back that you're team good because you have the right pronouns, um, this could get kind of real. I mean, you could get, you could have a whole class of people just plugged in to this virtual reality. Um, it's kind of like the ready player one movie. Um, the, you know, the, the, the idea that you're just sort of in this, like everyone's in this slum, but they're in this kind of virtual reality. That's really fun and, and compelling. And they're getting the dopamine that, that they want. And then I sort of just had this idea that, okay, people get co you know, uh, coerced and encouraged and, um, incentivized to get into this sort of paradise, virtual paradise. Um, but you still have to keep them alive You know, you still got to feed them. They still could, you know, they still need their machines, their equipment, et cetera. Maybe some of them, there are dopamine receptors, like a heroin addict, you need more and more and more, and it's not doing the job anymore. I mean, this, I think is exactly what would happen. The, the Neuralink would be effective for, you know, just like drugs are in the short term and the long term, it would never be enough. And, uh, it wouldn't work, but the the idea was that maybe they would get really good at um, just like if you take like a DMT trip. I've never done it, but I've heard that, you know time can slow down some of these drugs. It feels like you're there for a hundred years, and uh, you're there for a hundred years. It's my phone ringing, super annoying while I'm trying to do the podcast, unedited one, and uh, and so you just slow down time. So even if you know the the dopamine hit from the Neuralink is eventually going to wear off you just make that 10 minutes seem like a hundred years or a thousand years if they perfect it. They just really slow down time and then they can just kill you off after 10 minutes. I mean, they can even argue that, you know, you've got only a 90 year lifespan or now it's 76 because we've had a declining lifespan uh, with the uh, MRNA shot, I think has a lot to do with that. But 
Um, you can just give people 10 minutes. It feels like a hundred years or even a thousand years or more. If they can slow it down, make it seem slower, they get a full life with all the fun and um, exciting things that they get more than they could ever possibly imagine in real life. And it's, it's for the good, right? We save resources and yet everybody still gets a full life. And that would be sort of the premise of the story. Maybe I've talked too long about it because um, maybe it's not even a story. Maybe it's just a, a quick idea, but that was the idea that the idea that, that once you make life about dopamine and the chase and pleasure, then doing it virtually is just as good. And then once you're doing it virtually, why does it matter how long you live in real time? So long as in perceived virtual time, it's a hundred years. And then why not just kill people after 10 minutes or one minute or one second after they've, because they can get a hundred years in that one second if you perfect the technology. And it's sort of a metaphor for, you know, people who are in the rat race in their real lives. Like, what are you doing? What is the point? Why are you slaving away at something you hate so that you can party on the weekends? You know, oh, hopefully I'll get late on the weekend and I'll get drunk and I'll eat a bunch of food and do this fun thing my friends on the weekend and then I go back to the grind and you get rewarded. And this is from an early age, right? When you're a kid and you know you do it as a parent, you, you give your kid an ice cream because they did something that you wanted them to do. And so you get bribed by food, you get bribed by sugar. You've got these scientists at these junk food companies making this stuff extremely compelling to your, um, you know, to your dopamine receptors, the crunch, the sugar, the salt, the seed oils, everything just makes you crave it more and more, the immediate gratification of it. And then, so you, you've been bribed from an early age and you live for pleasure. And then, you know, if you grow up and if you're fortunate enough to um, have some freedom from the grind and you're like, well, what do I want to do? You realize if you, you know, if you think about this stuff at all, if you give it any examination, that what you don't want to do is just try to have fun all the time, get pleasure all the time. Oh, and I'll get a great meal and then I'll go skiing and then I'll go golfing and then I'll do this and I'll travel. It's so fun. And all the people in the grind are like, that is fun. That that sounds great. But that's, at least from where I stand, that's just not um, a compelling vision of a life for me. Just having fun all the time. Having fun, it's cool if it happens along the way. If it happens when you're um, playing basketball with your kid and it's fun, that's fun because you're doing that um, as something that's fulfilling and it's for its own sake. You're not doing it for fun. You're doing it um, because your kid likes basketball. And then you're like, oh, that, this ended up being really fun. Uh, but you're not living from pleasure to pleasure. And then you start to have sort of the, the opposite thing. And this is, you know, the story of the Buddha, right? First, he saw that life was impermanent. People were getting sick. They were dying. They were getting old. And then he tried to um, be an ascetic. And he was like meditating out in the freezing cold and fasting and all that stuff. And you get all these influencers online. I'm going to fast for a month. I'm going to document my fast or my quest to run a five-minute mile or my quest to lose 30 pounds in 30 days or whatever, whatever it is. And I'm actually going to go on this uh, very strict diet myself after New Year's because not, and I'm kind of dreading it because I don't think it's like this fun documentary I'm doing. I do it because um, I think I have some inflammation and I'm just really trying to do an elimination diet. And I think like bone broth and meat is going to be the cleanest thing and then just add in things one at a time. But I don't want to do it. I, I don't feel like this is going to be fun or it's some sort of ascetic practice for me. It's more just like getting to the root of um, sort of the asthmatic feeling I have when I'm running and, and whatever, and just trying to see if there's something that I'm eating or doing that's contributing to that. 
but the other thing, you know, that I'm doing that we're doing as a family is I obviously I mentioned that Heather's mom passed away. We're flying to LA to, to, you know, to go to her service her funeral. And you think, oh, getting on a plane, going back and forth. And it's, you know, it's, it's not like a fun trip, right? It's a, it's a serious trip. And then, you know, there's a lot of people in the generation and her generation that, you know, they're, they're getting older, they're getting sicker and there's going to be funerals and there's going to be seeing everybody and all of that. And you think, oh man, it's, it's not going to be fun vacation time. It's going to be, you know, taking care of um, people in your, in the prior generation. And, you know, you start to get like a sense of like, well, where's the fun? You know, I did all my rat race. I retired from it. Where's the fun? Aren't, aren't I supposed to be doing fun? And instead I'm doing this. And then you start to realize, of course, this is, this is life, right? Like it is life to get up in the morning and walk the dog. It is life to uh, get on a plane and, and pay respects to somebody who passed away that you respected and loved, right? That's, that is life. And that is the thing. And maybe you have a card game on the plane with your kid and there's just a connection for a moment, or maybe um, your back's aching and you just observe that and feel that. And there's really, you know, the cold plunges and the fasts, extended fasts. That's just when you, you're not living life. Like in a way, like the cold plunge and the fast is just getting on that shitty airplane, dealing with security and um, doing the things that is part of your life. And that is it. Just like people who are, you know, driving to the gym to run on the treadmill instead of just going outside and riding their bike somewhere as transportation is exercise. We've now sort of um, segmented life into work and then leisure. And we we work out in the gym, you know, but we we are lazy in our lives. And it's sort of like I see people, you know, it's like I try to walk up the stairs uh, in the metro instead of take the escalator when I'm going to the track. Cause it's like, if I take the escalator to go to the track to run, it's kind of like, why, why am I going to the track? I could walk up the stairs and I go to the track, which is kind of ridiculous in itself. I'm running in a circle, right? I'm not just running through the city. Now my excuse is that my ankle is bad, which it is. I've had surgery. I think these Vivo barefoot shoes though are really changing the, where the stresses on my, my ankle. And I have no problems, at least on the track. I probably Maybe with those shoes, I could maybe run on concrete again. I'm just kind of used to the track and it's become a routine. But running in circles is really kind of a metaphor for um, doing exercise, doing something ascetic to, instead of just living your life with exercise, you know. Um, but it is what it is. And I'm, it, it seems like it fits into my life at this point. But it's just, it's interesting that, you know, what are you doing when you do a cold water plunge? You're sort of overwhelming the the mind and i'm probably going to do some this winter with a friend of mine I'm, I'm not against any of this stuff it's just the idea that this plunge or this fast or this withdrawal from dopamine is the practice or this meditation session when your life is just full of times where you don't want to get up you know you don't want to walk the dog in the morning or at night it's chilly out it's raining out um, you don't want to get on that airplane um, you don't want to help that person out. It's just, you just want to doom scroll on Twitter or do something that gives you a sense of, ah, I'm free to do whatever I want. And then you realize, well, this is, this is it. There is no uh, reward. And when I fasted for like a week, um, I remember day four, even when I fasted four days, you know, day, day three was always the hardest day four was easier. Day three, I'd be pissed. 
Cause I'd be like, where's my food? Like I, I did my work, I've done my job. You know, I've not a perfect person, but I'm doing what I'm supposed to. And where's my reward? And you realize you've just been trained to expect a reward. You know, I've been through the rat race company did well enough. I stayed up late doing the magazine in 2001, all night, Jeff Erickson and I were there all night, literally, because we had uh, people quit and no money and we just did it. Um, you know, where's the reward? Shouldn't I be able to do, you know, whatever the hell I want? And the answer is, yeah, you can do whatever the hell you want. And then you realize whatever the hell you want is not, <laughs> is not what you thought it would be when you were stuck in the grind. And uh, so anyway, I was just thinking about that, writing that story about how you know, they're, they're killing you off. And the argument is, well, we gave them a hundred years of experience of dopamine in one second. What's the difference? And that they actually have a point, right? Like obviously it would be barbaric to do that. Kill off the useless eaters by putting them into the dopamine dome um, to get endless pleasure um, for their own good. But in a way, it's kind of like if you're just doing that in real life, just trying to <clears throat> have the chase to get the dopamine, um, how much better off are you than the guy who's in the virtual reality just getting those receptors stimulated anyway? You know, how much, how much more meaningful is your actual life? Uh, maybe the, the only reason your actual life would have more meaning is that um, there's a chance that your plan's going to fail, that you're, you know, you're not going to have the pleasure that you thought you would have, that you're not going to have the tidy, um, plan work out. And so you're going to suffer. People are going to die. You're going to have to deal with it or not deal with it and suffer the remorse of not handling, you know, your responsibilities. And that, that the reason, you know, is that you have a chance to be disappointed and then find something that's more, um, vital as a result of your disappointment. And that the, putting you in the VR world and killing you in 10 seconds because you had a hundred years there um, is what it's not what they want for you. It's what you want for yourself. And that's the scary thing that it's only going to happen that these things are only happening um, with voluntary consent in the end, even though, you know, things like the MRNA shot was coerced and it was not informed consent in the end, you only allowed yourself to be coerced because you wanted to believe experts because you didn't want to, suffer the discomfort of thinking for yourself because you wanted to trust them. And in the end, you're going to go into the virtual reality dopamine machine and they'll kill you off in 10 seconds or maybe give you a hundred years. It's not, doesn't really matter. It's not going to be any different because you didn't want to live a more vital life because it was too emotionally uncomfortable because you'd been trained and bribed and coerced and led to believe that emotional discomfort wasn't part of your experience, that if it were, that something went wrong. And that was the message you got. And you've just been sort of misled and ill-taught um, the whole time. Now, I have to say, you know, thinking of it this way, maybe it will coalesce into a real story and a real piece, or maybe not. Maybe I just, you know, described it and that's enough. But it does give me a sense of dread and despair a little bit because I'm programmed the same way everyone else is, right? Like I wanted to you know, okay, like I'm done. I'm good. I can go travel, live my life. You know, these houses in Portugal, they're just glacially slow getting built. And maybe the David Webb thing will happen and I'll get rugged before they actually get finished. Maybe so. I don't know. 
but I have this vision of sort of being in them and in my sauna and sweating and in the cold plunge and the unheated pool in the winter. And then, you know, being in my office podcasting and writing and living that life. And I have this vision for it and it sounds so peaceful and whatever, but, um, but in a way it's like the vision that gives me comfort is sort of an escape in and of itself too. Right. It's like, I don't have to go anywhere. I can just be there, um, tending to the garden, not dealing. And maybe it's so slow because, you know, maybe that's not, I don't know. Maybe that's not what I really, really in my heart of hearts want, you know, I don't know. I'm still planning to do it, but I'm trying to sort of just embrace the, uh, despair and dread of, you know, maybe your life is going to just be about handling things, you know, taking care of your responsibilities and being in that completely. And that that's, that is it. You know, I talked about, um, a couple of weeks ago, the heaven hell purgatory and that the enlightened people, it's not that they go to heaven, which is temporary, but it's that they're comfortable in purgatory, that they like purgatory after a while, not even like, cause it's uncomfortable, but that discomfort is itself freedom because you're just okay. You're not resisting it anymore. And when there's no difference between purgatory and heaven, that's heaven. And when there's no difference between ordinary life, handling your responsibilities and the freedom that you would hope to get by doing things that other people told you you had to do to get to that freedom. Well, there's no difference between ordinary life and your choice of what you're doing. You know, maybe that's enlightenment. Anyway, that's all for this week. Till next time.